The following is a Red Apple Podcast Network presentation. They say this is a big, rich town. I just come from the poet's part. Bright light, city life, I gotta make it. Welcome to Dominic Carter's podcast. This is Dominic Carter's City Hall. Now, here's Dominic Carter. Red Apple Podcasts, Talk Radio 77, WABC. You can listen to me, Dominic Carter, weeknights at midnight, Sundays at 11 p.m. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's no secret that law enforcement officers across the country are under fire. This is my podcast. Let's go. For example, you don't think a correction officer's job is next to impossible? Here is a dose of their reality. You receive cat calls. You receive disrespect. Uh, you could walk past an inmate cell where uh, an inmate, he or she will probably and can happen. And it has happened. Douse you with urine uh, that's mixed in a cup uh, with feces and it goes in your face and in your mouth. And you don't know whether they have AIDS or anything else. There's uh, an area in which you're working that has communicable diseases in it. And you're dealing with uh, 50 different personalities of, of inmates, some uh, psychological, some emotional, um, suicidal. You are the, the, the doctor, the mother, the father, the brother, the sister. You are everything to that person right now in that area because you're, you're locked in with them. That's Norman Seabrook, the former president of the New York City Correction Officers Benevolent Association. It's a sad testament to the times we live in where the far left has put the country in a situation where law enforcement officers can't do their jobs effectively anymore. I wanted to talk to someone who has a strong law enforcement background, but is also of a strong standing in the community, and that is Mr. Seabrook. Thank you for joining us. And from state to state, it seems like the hands of police officers, correction officers, law enforcement officials are tied that they are being held back from doing their jobs, certainly in the big urban cities. Why is that? I think that um, individual law enforcement officers uh, that serve and protect whether it be uh, in the jails, as sheriffs, correction officers, police officers, MTA police, uh, park police, uh, any individual uh, today uh, that's in law enforcement is very, very apprehensive about getting involved in anything that may be misconstrued as excessive use of force or uh, over and beyond or that it's just uncomfortable for them right now. For those that want to do the job, they're afraid that they're not going to get the support that they need when something happens. And those that don't want to do the job is causing more chaos in in the, the division that they work in. And I think that that's unfortunate because we have to get back to enforcing the law respectably and when an infraction is committed. We can't just willy-nilly 
pull people over. Oh, I thought. If the person broke the law, yes, you do what you got to do. If the inmate did something wrong, yes, you do what you have to do. But you have to be firm and you have to be consistent at the same time, Dominic. You know, right now you, you, you do something, you go to court, you go to the DA, the guy is out before you get out of writing your report. This is ridiculous. We have to go back to basics, basics 101, law enforcement 101. So, okay, so you just talked about that. How do we, how do we fix the problem? And I guess, cause you just addressed that a little bit, but also stop, how do we stop nitpicking at law enforcement? To be honest with you, Mr. Seabrook, I find it utterly disgusting. I think that, um, we stopped allowing public opinion to control our reaction. I don't allow things to control I don't, I don't allow what Dominic says anymore, and I'm using your name for an example, to control what I do. If Dominic says something to me, um, I, I don't put it in my head and go, I got to do this because Dominic said. We in law enforcement and those that are listening should understand we can't allow someone's opinion to control our actions because there may be a bunch of officers out there that are doing the right thing every day, but... Sooner or later, something slightly went on in public opinion was you got to hang them and hang them high. And at the end of the day, as opposed to the administrator looking at it and being um, conscious about the, the, the past practices of the person and going forward with the person and, and making some recommendations for the person, they hang them and hang them high because the public opinion said to them, do it. We can't do that anymore because now we are not policing what we're doing is reacting and that's that's a very that's a very very excellent point we are chatting with norman seabrook the former president of the new york city correction officers benevolent association he has been in law enforcement his entire career is it a matter of because you hear a lot of law enforcement officers say this around the country when they're talking to you privately but these days mr seabrook they're even saying it publicly is it a matter of political leadership at the local and national level not supporting law enforcement i i would have to give that 50 50 uh, and, and why do i say 50 50 because you have individuals that at the local levels um that um demand certain things from the precinct in their area or the local sheriff or or the local county executive. You have individuals that say, if you don't do this, you know, we're going to get you out of office and you won't be uh, in your administrative position anymore and you have to go with the good old boy system. Let law enforcement do their job. Let fire department do their job. Let sanitation department do their job and you do your job. And at the end of the day, everybody wants the job done, but nobody wants to do the job. And everybody wants to throw stones and, and criticize a Monday morning quarterback and say, well, I would have done it this way. Then take the test, pass the test, and then move up the ranks. And you could have that opportunity to make those decisions. But for the most part, Dominic, I think that, uh, more, I think that elected officials are, um, not um, allowing policies and procedures to take place because they are concerned about their 
percept the, the perception that people have of them. Um, if you're a governor, if you're a mayor, if you're a council member, whatever, you want people to like you. Everybody's not going to like you. You have to do what's right. So if you could, Mr. Seabrook, wave a magic wand to make the job of law enforcement officers across the country easier, what would you do with that magic wand? I think that um, what I would do is, is I would first reorganize my, my staffing levels. I, I would first reorganize it to a point of saying, who do I have working with whom? Um, and, and, and pair them up uh, with um, a seniority and, and pair them up with uh, an individual that um, is conscious and, and knows the community. You can't take a person from um, Nebraska or California or Chicago and put them in the middle of Times Square and say, okay, police this area and you got two miles circumference around you because the person doesn't know the community. The person doesn't know the, the, the ins and outs of that area, nor vice versa of, of New Yorker going there to do it. So you have to first get those in law enforcement that know the community to work the community. Part one, part two, you then have to move in law enforcement to developing a relationship with the community in which they are working. I think point number three that I would do to wave this magic wand is take the opportunity to uh, reestablish a relationship with the uh, district attorney's office, with the prosecutor's office, and ask them, what are you looking for that allows us to be able to prosecute this person to whatever level of criminal activity that they have committed and get a response from them. And then with the fourth thing and final thing I would do as I put that plan into action, because doing that, it gives you a sense of uh, who's in charge. It gives you a sense of, of, of the type of person that you're dealing with on both ends. And then you get the opportunity to go out into the community and do your job and have a communicate, have communication with the people that live there, because those are the people that you're there to serve. Let me ask you this question. We are chatting with Norman Seabrook, the former president of the New York City Correction Officers Benevolent Association. And let's zero in on your expertise, uh, the jails and prisons. This might seem like a um, like a uh, a silly question, a stupid question. But why uh, across the country? Right. We've seen some jails, some states privatize jails uh, in Mississippi and so on. But why why can't law enforcement officials get violence completely under control? I know we're dealing with violent individuals, the worst of the worst. But why can't they get it under control in prisons, in jails? Part of the reason why they can't get it uh, under control is because everyone is housed together. Um, you, you have some individuals that need, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, mental health uh, treatment. Good point. On a daily basis. And with the mental health system, 
it's failing those that need it more. Um, you, you and others heard the story of, of what happened in New York City with the stabbing of an individual that got up and stabbed two teenage tourists in our city. Uh, you heard the story of that same individual slashing uh, another inmate uh, while being held at Rikers Island. Um, and, and you should never have had that person in that common area to be able to do that type of assault on someone else. So I think that what happens in the jail system is that the housing of these individuals are done just throw them in the pen, throw them in the cell, in the, in the, in the cell just throw them in the dormitory, and not really have compassion and understanding if the repercussions behind this, because now you have a situation where someone's going to ask, why was this inmate in this area? How did this happen? There's going to be a ripple effect here. Everybody's going to be, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. That goes back to what I said about supervision and being able to work in area in which you are trained to do so properly. We don't have that anymore. Everybody's just, it's just a numbers game now of saying crime is down. It's a numbers game of saying crime is up. Everybody is now nitpicking. Everybody is now allowing public opinion to take control of administrative processes. Uh, So you have the officer that says, you know what, I'm not doing this. Uh, And then the other officer that says, come on, I am doing it. No, the other one says, I'm just here to get a check. I'm not here to get sued. I'm not here to get this. I'm not here to get that. I'm not here to get hurt. But at the same time, the other guy or the gal is going, well, we got to do this job. We got to do this job. So it's, it's all over the place right now. And it has to be policing, correction, law enforcement, one-on-one, all over again. Let's get back to basics. Let's stop allowing public opinion to dictate how we do our job. And let's do our job the way that the job is supposed to be done. And when someone creates uh, uh, an infraction, give them the ticket or whatever the case may be. Let's do it the way it's supposed to be done. And let's stop letting individuals control our emotions and our thoughts. You mentioned the word leadership, supervisors. The one thing, Norman Seabrook, that um, officers tell me around the country, and, and I do think they have a point about this, law enforcement officials, whether it's jails, your expertise, or police officers, the one thing they consistently say is that when something goes terribly wrong, initially, there's no supervisor to be found. And they believe that that's intentional. What's your reaction to that? I think that, um, and being quite candid with you, that probably uh, is, is not necessarily true. And why do I say that? Because you as the individual officer has the right to notify a supervisor prior to you getting ready to do anything. If you're, if you're, you know, going into a jail situation and, and there's an incident that you see in front of you that looks like it's about to get out of control, you get on the radio, you get on the telephone, you say, listen, I request a supervisor at this location. You put it in your logbook, you document it, and if something does go wrong, you say, hold on a second. 
I asked for a supervisor. Nobody showed up. And now you want to put this on me? No, 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 no. It don't work like that. People have to start to do their job the way that the job is supposed to be done because it tells you notify a supervisor, whether it be police officer, correction officer, deputy sheriff, uh, park police, whatever it may be. Notify your supervisor, document it that you did this A, B, C, D, and then hopefully you'll be able to uh, write your report and be able to be, you know, vindicated from anything that can happen to you because you follow procedures. So people listening from around the country, uh, I venture to say most of them don't know what the life of a correction officer is like, how dangerous it is. Again, that's your expertise. You uh, was the union president for all of these correction officers, and 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 you still are a major political uh, figure. Talk to us about the jobs now, from the perspective of people that just don't know what it's like uh, uh, working as a correction officer dealing with with inmates that that are that can be at times very very violent i think for the average person that um gets the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with a correction officer or a uh deputy sheriff that works inside the confines of a of a facility i think they'll find that those individuals are under uh, a tremendous amount of stress. Uh, let me let me start by saying a correction officer comes to work uh, in the morning, uh, 7 a.m. Uh, the correction officer walks in, the correction officer signs in, does everything that he or she is supposed to do, inspection for roll call, then takes a housing area post. Uh, what's a housing area? It's an area in which uh, individual inmates are housed until such time they go to court or they are released from the city's jail system or from the state system or, or whatever it may be. That person then has uh, 50, 60 individuals that they have to supervise, that they are solely responsible to supervise. Um, you receive cat calls, you receive disrespect. Uh, you could walk past an inmate cell where uh, an inmate, he or she will probably and can happen and it has happened douse you with urine uh, that's mixed in a cup uh, with feces and it goes in your face and in your mouth and you don't know whether they have AIDS or anything else. There's uh, an area in which you're working that has communicable diseases in it. Everyone, not everyone, but some are coughing and it could have tuberculosis or whatever the place is. Uh, the placement of uh, infectious diseases are in that area. Um, you have an environment that um, sometimes uh, it's unsanitary, um, not being able to um, have the proper uh, cleaning supplies or those to do it to keep it uh, in, a, in a respectable way. And you have to deal with all of this for eight hours. And then they tell you, well, you're stuck on overtime for another four hours. So now you're there uh, for, for 12 hours in that area and you're dealing with uh, 50 different personalities of, of inmates, some uh, psychological, some emotional, um, suicidal. You are the, the, the doctor, the mother, the father, the brother, the sister. You are everything to that person right now in that area. 
because you're you're locked in with them. You're not going anywhere. And then um, you deal with that, and then you get off after 12 hours. And as opposed to uh, going home, uh, you go into the locker room. Um, you don't have the proper shower equipment. Uh, you don't have the proper plumbing in the area to change clothes. You go home in the same um, garments or whatever that you came in with. Uh, and instead of going home, you're now at the bar. So now you're at the bar for another three, four hours with the guys or the gals. And you're just talking about the stress. You're talking about the work. You're talking about the that you went through all day long of who didn't do what. And then you get in your car and you're driving, you're intoxicated. God forbid something happens, but you know, you made it home. Thank God you made it home. But now you're home and you have no time for the wife. You have no time for the children. Your temper is short. You're, you're, you're in another world. So this world that you're living in is a very, very dangerous world. What we have to do is we have to reconstruct the system so that the system works in favor of everyone. The system has to work where the individuals with mental health are separated, the individuals with um, um, individual cases of, of uh, sexual abuse so that they are put in another area because they can be assaulted and they will be assaulted by inmates who don't allow pedophiles or anything else around them. So you have all of this that you have to juggle as the administrator in the Department of Correction or in the state corrections or wherever it may be, and you have to deal with all of this, and it's not easy to juggle. And that's why I said to you when we started the show, Dominic, that my resolution is to get closer to God because every Everything else is just off the hook. So uh, a few minutes ago, you said something I want to follow up on as it relates to correction officers. You said that you, you arrive at work, the officer is sent to a housing area, for the most part, a housing area. How in the world, Mr. Seabrook, can one officer supervise 50, 60 inmates? How is that possible? Well, look, it is possible. It is possible. And, 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 and I say it's possible because it has been done. It has been done. I've done it. I've done it where I've had to supervise inmates as a correction officer. And that goes back to what I said about communication in the community. That's the community. That jail setting, that housing area setting, that's your community officer. You have to be able to communicate with the people in that community. You can't be afraid to speak to people because that's how you gain knowledge. That's how you give knowledge. That's how you exchange ideas. You have to be able to communicate with people. Just because the person is sitting in the corner dribbling doesn't mean they're not intelligent. It's just, I don't know what's wrong with them. Let's find out. You have to talk to people and it could be done I, in, in a perfect world. I like to see two or three officers working in an area in which they all had 20 inmates apiece to supervise I, in, in a perfect world. I'd like to see um, police officers instead of being two or one in a, in a patrol car. I'd like to see two or three working together in the community. I'd like to see them on foot as opposed to in a car. I'd like to see them moving around. I'd like to see them um, being able to communicate with, with people in the community in, in a better and more productive way as opposed to them looking at you and you looking at them. Because when you see a correction officer or you see a police officer, that inmate or that bad guy is like a bull that sees that red cape. You're the enemy. You are the enemy. It doesn't matter. You are the enemy. You could be the nicest person in the world. The uniform 
is like the the matador that has the red cape. And and you know what? All hell breaks loose at that point if you don't have it under control. You got to keep your head on a swivel. You got to do what it is that you're supposed to do, but you have to be proactive. You can't allow yourself to take on the identity of those you are paid to supervise. You must have that person that you're supervising look up to you and go, wow, I could do that. But that all comes with communication. Dominic, how many times have we seen in the system injustices? Because the injustice that we see, everybody's got their ears closed. Well, I don't want to know. It's not my job. I don't want to know. You got to be able to talk to people. So, yeah, in a perfect world, I like to see two or three officers working. In a perfect world, I'd like to see, you know, a, a number of things change. And those things change at the local level because elections have consequences. If you don't vote, you don't have a right to, to tell me anything. You didn't vote. Agreed. I, you know, I, I want to, I'm going to go back to my general questions about law enforcement in a second, but I've always been curious about this and, and you as a, uh, a top official, uh, uh, from, from New York city, as it relates to the jail system can answer this to me, for me around the country. If someone goes to jail for uh, a crime uh, uh, involving uh, sexual abuse of a child, they are, for lack of a better word, a marked man, and other inmates are going to seriously try to hurt that individual, if not kill them, or someone accused of uh, rape. W why is that? I'm just curious. I think uh, that, well, I can talk about me as a man uh, that has daughters. I'm not playing that. You not know that that abusive of a child or 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 rape or or whatever you want misappropriation, whatever you want to call it. We as men have this thing, this wall that you in this line you just don't cross it. Not with children, not with women, or anything like that. That's the product of who men have become for the most part. So you get into jail and someone finds out that you're a pedophile or whatever the case may be, and you're not separated from uh, the general population and you end up in population and they find out what you've done. You know, it could be, it could be very rough on you. I'm not saying it happens, but I, I certainly wouldn't sleep on the fact that something can happen to you. I mean, Dominic, I have been, um, in, in, in a lot of different, I worn a lot of different hats uh, in the city. I was a, a commissioner for the MTA. And every time the Metropolitan Transportation Authority talked about raising the fare, I voted no as a, as a voting member of, of the MTA board. I voted no because you got to give the people something as opposed to asking them to keep giving you. You have to give them something in return for what they're giving you. Give them something. I was a, a commissioner for the United States Postal Service uh, under George Bush, uh, uh, George W., the, the, the president of the United States. And wow, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that about you. But anyway, please yes. continue. When they when they try to privatize the postal service, um, we were on a we were it was a commission. It was it was a, a few of us about 
nine, 12 of us, maybe somewhere thereabouts. And I voted, no, I'm not voting to get rid of the postal service. I've traveled to different post offices throughout the country uh, and seen their operation. Um, I've done those things. Okay. It's about the people. And that goes back to communication. Here I go again. If we would get rid of the post office, and you couldn't pick up, you couldn't get mail deliveries or anything else. And it was UPS or it was FedEx or whoever was trying to come in at the time. I don't recall exactly who it was, but they were trying to come in at the time. There would be no personalized service for mom and pop that's out there somewhere in, in the Midwest that goes to the general uh, store to pick up their mail or whatever the case may be. There'd be no communication. You'd be just a, just a number, just, you know, get your mail through email. The next thing they would be telling people, you know, it, it's really ridiculous so you have to go back to communication that's in the jail the police department transportation wherever it may be people are are just fed up with what's going on in law enforcement um the 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 crime rate continues to rise uh the migrant situation continues to to flood uh the city of new york um no one seems to be able to get a handle on on how to to handle this exactly. They want to build more jails as opposed to building more housing. They, you know, I, I just don't see where it makes any sense of, of spending billions of dollars of taxpayers' dollars, and we're spending billions of dollars on the migrant problem. And I think that at the end of the day, it's just a matter of time before the situation becomes where we're going to start to get taxed more because we have to now pay for this hole that we're in. Let me ask you this question, and I'll I'll come back to uh, more specifically to some uh, issues, but uh, the anti-Israel protests uh, that are occurring around the country, right? We, we saw that they tried to block JFK in New York. They tried to block uh, LAX in Los Angeles. And it's not the police officers, it's not the law enforcement officers' fault, but why does it seem like the protesters, even if there's a violation of law, why does it seem like they're being treated with kid gloves? I don't know if they're being, well, I'm not there in, in, in that mix at that moment, so I don't know if they're being treated with kid gloves or, or kid gloves or, or, or not, but what I do know is that when you are uh, allowing people to protest um, and you have that right, I would hope uh, and I would think that you would start a line of communication. Here I go again with that word. And the reason why I say that is because what I would do is I want to sit down with the organizer of this protest and and say and, and come to some type of agreement that, okay, I am going to allow you to protest, but you're going to protest in this area from here to here, from point A to point B or Z or whatever area you want to give me enough space for you to do whatever it is you want to do. I'm going to allow you to be a uh, voice to voice your opinion on whatever it is that you want to voice your opinion on, but we want it to be orderly and we want it to be, you know, uh, respectable in, in within the confines of the law. Those that come out of that, area. Uh, not not that I'm penning them in. I'm not talking about penning them in. I'm just talking about whatever designated 
uh, agreement that we have on the area that you need to be in. Whoever comes out of that area, of course, we're going to apprehend them, arrest them, give them a ticket, whatever it is that you're going to do to them. And I think that just my opinion is um, there are individuals that are um, antagonistic and, and, and they're professionals. They go out here and they just stir shit up. You know, it doesn't matter. They don't care whether it's right or wrong. They just want to get in the mix. And you have to deal with those individuals. But you go back to communication, Dominic. So I think that once that's done, then you could say to your police officers, you could say, look, anyone that does A, B, and C, you have the right to arrest them, detain them, put them on a bus, set them central booking, do whatever it is that you're going to do uh, within the confines of the law. So I think that there's a lack of communication on what can we do, what should we do, and when can we do it. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. And that communication must be figured out. Our law enforcement officers fail. Society fails as well. They are our last line of defense. And that is all the time we have for this episode. Thank you, folks, for joining us. You can catch me live on 77 WABC weeknights at midnight, Sundays at 11 p.m. Go check out the Dominic Carter merchandise at the 77 WABC store from Dominic Carter T-shirts, the hats, and much more. Go to WABCRadioStore.com. You can also order my remarkable book on my life, of overcoming obstacles that you can't even begin to imagine at the 77 WABC store. It's titled No Mama's Boy. You can also get the book at my website, DominicCarterOnline.com, DominicCarterOnline.com, where the book will be signed by me. Also, follow me on YouTube, where you will see videos from me about the podcast and the radio show, youtube.com forward slash Dominic Carter. We will see you the next time. Dominic Carter, Red Apple Podcast, Talk Radio 77, WABC. I gotta make it. Dominic Carter Socials on Twitter at Dominic TV and Facebook and Instagram. Dominic Carter TV. Email at Dominic.Carter at WABCRadio.com. Until the next episode, be well. And as Dominic always says, stay positive. The glasses always half full, never half empty. Dominic Carter City Hall.